0: Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for visiting with us. It's an honor to have you. If you will be, open your Bibles to Jeremiah, the second chapter. Jeremiah, the second chapter. In a few moments, we'll be looking uh, at several verses out of that chapter. So be sure and take your Bible and open up there, and we will uh, study from the book of Jeremiah in a few moments. What a wonderful, wonderful week we had last week. We appreciate all that worked with Vacation Bible School. We appreciate all of you young people that participated in that. And uh, your participation, no doubt, made it a great success. Uh, We appreciate Andrew and the tremendous leadership that he offered to uh, that tremendous occasion. And we look forward uh, to those seeds growing and growing in the lives of our children and even in the lives of the children in the community that no doubt time will only tell uh, the good that always takes place uh, during Vacation Bible School. Also, we appreciate Johnny Cade for going down this past week and working with the Katrina Relief Efforts. The week before that, I understand Glenn Kaufman and Gary Howard also win, and it's wonderful to have a congregation that's full of people, that's willing to give it their time, their talents, their skills, their finances to do God's work. And what a blessing and encouragement it is to all of us Uh, when each does their part. And make sure out of all the opportunities that continually surround us that you find your place in the Lord's body and, and simply do what He gives you the opportunity and the ability to carry out. Also continue as already has been throughout the day, but let's continue in our prayers for those. uh, We have at least 35, maybe a little bit more than that, that are away at Camilla, Georgia, and their VBS will actually start tomorrow. They knocked over 500 doors on Saturday. They spent this afternoon setting up and preparing uh, for the Vacation Bible School at the the church building, and then, of course, it will start tomorrow, and that is a tremendous, tremendous occasion for the church there in camilla georgia it's great for the youth in the community that come and learn more about god and it's also of course a great time of edification for our youth and the adults that help in that particular work so let's pray for the success of that and and continue to support that in that way Uh, the widows had a wonderful luncheon this afternoon at the maddox's house Uh, if you know the maddox's very well you can guess what we ate and wow was it delicious uh, fish fry like no other fish fry. What a blessing it is. And uh, God blesses us a lot more than what we deserve. A lot more than what we deserve. And let's make sure that we're grateful to Him uh, for all that, that He does for us individually and, and especially for us as a church family. And let's be wise with those blessings and yet let's use them all to God's glory. Substitutes. You know, there's sometimes that substitutions are fine. Maybe you go to have a prescription field. And maybe the pharmacist asks, Would a generic drug be okay? Well, maybe it's fine. Oftentimes, people say when they speak of a substitute, Oh, it's just about the same as the real thing. I can't tell a difference at all. Some people like to substitute sweet and low in their tea instead of sugar. Some people like to substitute margarine instead of butter. Some people like to substitute a store brand name instead of a brand name. Years ago, in the dairy industry, there used to be some little tricks. These substitutions weren't acceptable in most people's standards. You see, dairymen would oftentimes water down their milk. And that allowed them to be able to sell more milk, more profits. Also, they would put flour in their cream to thicken it up to make it look like a better quality of cream. And if their cows were diseased and the milk was a little bit tainted, they would put chalk in the milk to color it back up and to brighten it. Now, most of us would say, Now, that's substitution that I just couldn't accept. That's not right, except for those of you guys that drink skim milk. You're fine with that. But other than that... Other than that, most people, most people would say, you know, that's, that's just not acceptable. If, if we're going to substitute, let's at least have one that, that is appropriate, that is a proper substitution. Tonight I'll ask a question that probably all of us here already know the answer, but I think it's still worth it for us to go into the Word of God and see what God has said about this from the beginning of time. What can you substitute for God? Is it ever appropriate to substitute God? Well, we think back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments and the first two of the Ten Commandments deal with that, to have no other gods before us and not to have any graven images. In other words, God made it very clear from the beginning, there's no substitution for God. There's no substitution for God's will that's an acceptable substitution. But yet when we see throughout history, man has had a problem with not substituting God. And so in Jeremiah, we read a, a beautiful passage that, and maybe I shouldn't say beautiful, but I, I meant to say it's a beautiful study in the sense that it does us well. It would be good for us to do it, but yet it's a study that, that is challenging. It's a study that's very direct. In other words, a quick, quick history lesson to bring us up to this in Jeremiah. The northern kingdom has already fallen, and Judah, much of it, is already fallen, and Jerusalem is just hanging on. A hundred years before this, it was Isaiah that came along and urged Jerusalem to turn back to God so that they would be spared of the Assyrians, and they were. And now we see it's time for the, the Babylonian captivity is about upon them, and, and God sends Jeremiah in to make his plea with them. Perhaps they would repent. We know the end of that story, that they don't. And so 70 years, they're taken into exile. But now think for just a moment, if you're Jeremiah, God's asking you to do something. And what God asked him to do was talk to people that didn't want to listen. Talk to people about a God they did not want to serve. To talk to people about a law they did not want to obey. And Jeremiah showed more emotion than any of God's prophets. In other words, he had no problem telling God that he didn't like the job that he gave him. He didn't have any problems showing the people that he's fed up with them and their behavior. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of the book, he says to God, I'm too young for this job. Don't ask me to do it. At another time, he says to God, I just wish I would die. I don't want to do this. Another time, he says, I'm just going to shut my mouth and I'm not going to say another word to these people. And then finally, he says, but the word of God is like a fire in my bones and, and I have to speak it. I need to note this about Jeremiah. He might not have liked what God asked him to do, but you have to say hats off to him. He always obeyed. He continued to speak what God asked him to speak to a group of people that offered no support at all. He kind of strips down that idea that if I'm faithful to God, my life is going to be just full and bubbly and happy and no, he shows us that there's been a lot of people on this earth that have been faithful to God, and it was tough. It was a sacrifice. But yet he still realized he needed to be faithful. So now we come to Jeremiah, the second chapter. And we see him dealing with some people that have already begun to substitute God in almost every fashion in their life. And notice this as we read 11 and 12. This is Jeremiah 2, 11 and 12. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. Notice that capitalized G there. They've changed their glory. For what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. They've changed God. Be afraid. Be horribly afraid. This isn't a substitution that any man has a right to do. This isn't a substitution that can ever lead to anything good. This is a substitution that ought to bring fear in the lives of an individual that changes their God. It ought to bring fear into the life of a family when they change their God. It ought to bring fear into the life of a church when they change their God. Listen to this. It ought to bring fear into a nation when that nation changes their God. Now let's go back and let's give a brief history of what's taking place here in the second chapter. It hasn't always been this way. You see, when we look at the first four verses of Jeremiah, the second chapter, we see that God speaks of one time their faithfulness. Three times he says in these three verses that this comes from the Lord. In verse one, he says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. And then he says in the middle of verse two, thus says the Lord. And at the end of verse three, he says again, thus says the Lord. And so this is a historical account that God has given Jeremiah. Let's read just the middle of verse two. He says, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, and uh, when you went after me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. And so he says, I remember that nation that loved me. I remember that nation that followed me like like a, a bride follows the groom. I remember back in your youth when you wanted to serve me. But what changed? When we read verses 4 through 8, we see the change. I'd like to note just a few of the verses that especially point to where Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God, points the finger for the blame in their change. Look as he says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters? He blames it on the fathers. Have your fathers come up to God and said, there it is, you're wrong right there. God, because you're wrong in that area, now I'm going to begin following idols. There it is, God, you are unfaithful right there. Because you've been unfaithful to us, God, now we're going to follow idols. You see, the test is a fair test for God to offer to us. He's saying to a nation of people, okay, you've left me. Just point out the injustice that caused you to leave. Well, of course, there wasn't an injustice, but notice, it's the fathers. If I want to raise a godly family, it's going to be so important for me to realize the importance of my godliness. That doesn't mean for certain that my children will grow up godly, but it does increase the odds significantly. Now, we also have an entire family, or entire nation leaving, not just a family. Let's skip down in verse 8 and notice the four areas of leadership that it refers to in 8. Still talking about them leaving as a nation. Look in verse 8. The priest. Now, keep in mind, he's already saying in these verses they've gone after idols instead of the Almighty God. prophesied by Baal, and walk after things that do not profit. Again, he brings it back to leadership. He mentions the priests, which were the spiritual leaders. And notice, the spiritual leaders should have been looking at the people that were going off in idolatry, and he should have been saying, wait, 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 wait. serving the Lord. Did you know there in verse 8 what they're doing? They're living a life of transgression. They're not striving for a life of holiness. They've already found their life in sin. And then finally in 8, he says, and the prophets, those that would speak forth for God. They're not speaking forth for God. They're speaking forth for idols, for Baal." Is it safe and fair to say that the future of this congregation is the youth? Now, I would agree that from one standpoint, that could be argued and be true. But friends, the future of any congregation has always been for leadership. A church never outgrows their leaders. However large their leaders are, that's as large as the church will ever become however righteous their leaders are that will be how righteous the church remains however committed to the great commission the leaders are the congregation will never be more committed to the great commission than her leaders however holy and devout her leaders the congregation will never surpass that We may find individuals that are the exception, but the congregation as a whole will never surpass her leadership. What is the church of tomorrow? It's whatever the leadership of tomorrow is. And we look at the tremendous leadership that we have today, and God has blessed us tremendously. And that is why this congregation is blessed, because of her leadership. Let's fast forward a few decades. What will the leadership be in a few decades? Whatever the leadership is in a few decades, that will be the church of that decade also. So it is. We must invest in our youth. We must allow our youth to know we love them and we believe in them. But friends, we can never stop investing in just the next generation of leaders either. It is so important that we have here in verse 8, those men can say, wait a minute, I know where the Lord is, and He's not over there, and He's not over there. I know the law of the Lord, and it's not over there, and it's not over there. And it's men that are men of spiritual integrity. Their life's not full of sinful vices and transgressions. They proclaim and what they demand to be proclaimed from the pulpit and from classrooms is the Lord and His will. Friends, we have a terrible situation unfolding in Jeremiah too. It's a nation of people that have left God for idols, and out of all the people that Jeremiah could have dressed on behalf of God, he didn't dress. other men that were a part of that nation he addressed the few men that were in leadership position he says where were you where were you when there should have been a standard? there should have been identity of the lord and you're not to be found that's why he offers the charge as we go into verse nine He says, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And then notice this next phrase, and against your children's children, I'll bring charges. Now, if we were right now in a situation where we could have a discussion, I could ask you, what do you think about grandchildren? And every one of you that have grandchildren would want to speak up. That always opens discussion wide open. Everybody here has the best grandchildren. Have you ever noticed that? And so when we think about how much we love grandchildren, Children's children aren't mentioned a lot of times in the scriptures. But here's one time where God says, I want to talk to you about your grandchildren. And he's talking about these men that allowed a nation to be led away from God. And he says, I'm not only going to charge you, but I want you to realize that your sins will also bring a hard life. Not only on you, not only on your children, it's going to bring a difficult life even on your grandchildren. And we know that shortly after this, Babylonians came in and took them over. Seventy years they lived in exile. When they finally returned back, they had a difficult time being committed to building back Jerusalem, building back the temple. Remember, Nehemiah had to come back and and encourage them to build back the wall. Do you remember what happens in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah? He gets Ezra out there and the people come and they stand all day long to the reading of God's word and they begin to weep and cry because not only does someone have to read it, but someone has to explain it because they don't know the word any longer. And they begin to cry when they hear what God's will is for them, no doubt realizing how far they had left God's will. Who do you think those people are we're referring to now? It was their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Why? Their sins. Brought about hard and difficult times for many, many generations. Now, we've already read verse 11 and 12. I'd like for you to note when we read verse 13, the Lord says, I have two things that I find as great sins against you. I'll be honest with you, when we read these two things, you might kind of first think, well, Yes, they're sins, but why are they so great? Does that really seem that significant? Let's read these and note that absolutely they are significant. Verse 13, we've read 11 and 12 about them changing God and they should be horribly afraid. In 13 he says, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The Lord has always wanted us to realize that He is the fountain of life. You know that we can live for weeks, really the truth is, we can live for months without food. But we cannot live for more than a week without water. No doubt, that is why the Lord continually identifies Himself as the fountain, the eternal fountain, the living fountain. Now, He puts that in opposition to the fact that as they left the Almighty God, they didn't leave this wonderful fountain. Think of yourself being thirsty. And you have the choice. Are you going to drink out of this fresh, wonderful fountain that's springing forth with this delightful tasting water or are you going to go over here where there's been a cistern hewn into the ground that immediately paints a picture in our mind of water that's been there for a while maybe water that's even tainted in color but really when you read on further you realize when they dug it they didn't do it properly and there's cracks in it and you go when there is no water well someone says well that's a given i'd go back to this fountain Spiritually speaking, it's not a given. Think of how many people leave the fountain of water to go to a cistern that's dry. One, that note there, they had to hew it out themselves. They've left the one that was provided for them to create their own, but yet it wouldn't hold water and they'd have to deliver water into it. And when they delivered water into it, it wouldn't hold water because it wasn't perfect. What's the teaching here? The teaching is given to us, especially in John. I'd like for you to look with me in in John, the fourth chapter. And I don't think we have a slide for this one. In John, the fourth chapter, Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And remember, He has asked her for a drink. And then we pick up in the middle of this conversation in verse 13 and 14. In John 4, Jesus answered and said to her, "'Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again.'" But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He says, you can take water from man and you'll always be thirsty again. You can take the water of God and it will satisfy, it will quench One man has said that there's a hole in the shape of every person's heart, the shape of God. In other words, as long as God is absent in my life, whatever I put in my heart is never going to satisfy. It'll be that water that we drink it today and we say, my life still doesn't matter. I'm still searching for something. I still need something. Do you realize you can give someone a billion dollars and they still aren't satisfied? There's something else they need. And we know what it is. We need God. We need that eternal water that it does quench thirst. It does give us direction in life. It does give us hope. It does give us purpose. That's why the Lord says, I'm the bread of life. He's what sustains us. That's why He says He's the fountain or the water of life. He's what can quench the thirst forever. But why is it that we struggle so much to go out there and hew out our own way? Look with me, if you will, Romans, the first chapter. We looked at this Sunday night, and I want to do this as much as anything just to tie together a few thoughts. Some of our youth have been in the Vacation Bible School uh, this past week with the 6th through 12th grade where we've had Dr. Brad Hareb to talk with us about... Uh, Evolution, and it was a powerful presentation that really made us think a lot about God as the creator, but it also makes us realize that evolution is nothing more than forsaking God. You remember our text this evening in Jeremiah 2? They have forsaken me. That's all evolution is. It's forsaking God. And when we forsake God, we have to come up with an explanation of creation. We have to come up with some kind of theory about our origins. Friends, do you realize that anyone that believes in God as the Creator, there's no doubt about that and no need to go over to this cistern that has holes in it. Now, I also want to remind you as we're here in Romans 1, you remember in our text in Jeremiah 2, they changed God, and then he says they changed the glory of God. Note this again, and this is what we read Wednesday night, but, but note this in Romans 1. We're picking up uh, verse 20. He says that we can know God from creation. 21, though we see this spiral away from God. Note the change. Note the change of glory. He says, because although they knew God... They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So our young people today, they open up their science book, and what do they find out? They find out as a nation in the academic field, at least in this one particular area, we've abandoned God. We've changed God. If we're going to talk about creation in truth, we have to talk about a creator. We have to talk about six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. But what if we want to change God? What if we want to change the glory of God to being like man? Well, then let's talk about evolution. He mentioned also this past week of opening recently one of the textbooks of our children's history. Textbooks. When he talked about how America was established... You know the explanation that is being rewritten in history now for why the pilgrims came to America? They wanted to take a long journey. No mention of God or religious freedom. Why? Because we have forsaken God. We are abandoning God. We are literally going back and rewriting history to leave God out of it. When it spoke of thanksgiving. You know what the explanation is in some of the more modern accounts of history? It had nothing to do with being thankful to God for the abundant harvest. It was because of the abundant harvest they wanted to gather the Indians together and celebrate. And that was Thanksgiving. Friends, nations can abandon God. Churches can abandon God. And that usually starts with leadership. Individuals can abandon God. If you would, I'd like for you to go back with me and we'll scan just a few verses in Jeremiah 2 and close the lesson. Look in Jeremiah 2. We're going to scan some verses between between 22 down to 28. And what we're going to see is three of the seven analogies that Jeremiah gives in this one chapter where he says, if you abandon God, if you stay on the path you're on, if you go into idolatry, let me show you what it's like. And as we read in 22 and 23, he says, it's like an individual taking lye and taking soap and they try, try to scrub themselves clean, but yet the mark is still there. What is he saying? It is a deadly combination of guilt, of sin, and going into idolatry. Because while we go in to serve that idol, that idol cannot cleanse us of our sins. And so the deadly conclusion is deadly guilt. Friends, why do I need to come back to this living water? This living water is the only place that I can have forgiveness of sins, and there's no one perfect. Notice the second thing. When I abandon that water and, and I go into my own cisterns that I've hewn out in my life where I've decided to do things my way, it also creates deadly desires. It creates desires that destroys my relationship with God. It usually creates desires that destroys relationships with people that I love. It never adds to a productive life and what life can be. He likens that desire to a camel and to a wild donkey in the times of their mating to where they chase each other around the field until they find each other. And any of us that have been around livestock at all, we know exactly the image that is there where an animal animal literally for a day or two days or three days goes around smelling in the air and that is the only thing that is on the mind of that animal. And here, that is the portrait that he portrays of the people that are leaving the Almighty God. For what? For an idol. Try to let that add up in your mind. How can that make sense? To have such a strong desire to follow an idol. Tell me this. Why do you and I sometimes have such strong desires to follow, to follow vices and sins? Things that are only going to hurt us. Things that are only going to bring guilt in our life. Desires that will not benefit us. Why do we do that? Because we take our eyes off the living water. And then finally, he gives the analogy in 6 of the thief. and When the thief is caught, He always covers his head and he's ashamed. you ever notice that on the news? News is running half or three-fourths of the time when someone's arrested. You see them walking out with a t-shirt draped over their head. They're in handcuffs. They don't want anyone to see them. In other words, it appears that they were glad to participate in the crime, but yet they don't want to be seen as a participant in the crime. And isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame when we are not thankful? with who we've become. Friends, tonight, let's be reminded of there's some things we can't substitute. We can't substitute God and have any blessings in our life. But when we stay with God, to have redemption, to have the shame of past sins washed away, and to have desires that build a better life, Do you realize that when you and I are faithful Christians, and that's our desire, we're better family members, we're better brothers and sisters in Christ, we're better parents, we're better neighbors, we're better workers. What a desire when someone says, I really want to be a Christian. Tonight, let's leave here dedicated this week to never substituting God or His will. Let's leave here demanding and within ourselves a desire as if a person were thirsting to death and saying, I have to have that water. Because the reality is without that fountain of water, we are thirsting to death. If you've never been baptized into Christ or if you have but fallen away, if we can help you in any way,